Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sofa, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to show 409. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Don't forget, this show is sponsored by Octagon Technology. 20 years taking your little problems and making them even littler in your IT world. Big thank you to Clive and Diane. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up, we have a little bit of short fiction, The Exterminator by Eric B. Scott. Then I do an interview with Professor Christopher Riley about Voyager, the two little spaceships we sent up way back in 1977. There's a chance now we might be able to get a few words, our own words, into the kind of these spacecraft to go out beyond the stars and meet whoever. There's a good chance we might be able to get our own words in there. So that's a great little interview. Then the main fiction is The Merger by Sunil Patel. That is all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So we'll jump straight in with the little short bit of fiction, which is The Exterminator by Eric B. Scott. It originally appeared in the Daily Science Fiction Eric B. Scott currently resides in Philadelphia, where he pursues a joint MD and PhD in degrees. <laughs> oh, Eric, lad, what are you giving yourself there? His lifelong love of writing speculative fiction is a welcome creative outlet for his love of science. The Exterminator was his first story, originally published in, like I say, the Daily Science Fiction, the January 2013. And... Since then, his fictions went on to appear in numerous anthologies. There is a link to his website if you want to come over to Starship Sova. That would be fantastic. And check out Eric B. Scott if you like this story. This story is narrated by Michael Naramore. Now, Michael Naramore is shooting up there to one of my favourite narrators. Michael Naramore has worked in the audiobook industry since 2001, when, fresh out of college, he was hired as a recording engineer for publisher Brilliance Audio, now Brilliance Publishing, a subsidiary of Amazon.com. Over time, he transitioned to director, all the while absorbing techniques and nuances for the best actors in the business, from the best actors in the business. To date, Michael has narrated well over 100 titles under his own and assumed names, 
Authors range from best-selling Nora Roberts, Lisa Gardner, Edward Klein and Clive Barker to sci-fi rising stars Wesley Chu, Ramiz Nas and Mark E. Cooper. Just beautiful narration there. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present The Exterminator by Eric B. Scott Narrated by Michael Naramore After the third knock, the door finally opened a crack. He saw a scaled hand wrap around the door and a pair of narrow yellow eyes peeking out suspiciously. I've been waiting, his serpentine voice beckoned. He opened the door and led Jaren inside. Jaren sighed. We are sorry for the delay, sir. There are hundreds of construction projects going on around the city right now, and most are in need of our services. The Morgat scoffed. I don't doubt that. My people actually take some pride in their progress, unlike you humans. His voice betrayed condescending pride as he spoke, and although he had intended to offend Jaren's humanity, in reality his barbs had missed the mark. I've always admired your people's commitment to progress, from the time I was just a young boy in one of your government's civil service camps. You were in a camp? inquired the Morgat. Jaren nodded. I expressed an interest in serving with the occupation forces, so I was displaced from my parents and put in one of the camps. My test scores weren't high enough, though. And so they placed you in the exterminators, interrupted the Morgat, seemingly unaware of Jaren's admiration. Now let's get to this job you're going to be doing for me. I have a huge pest problem in the basement. They've taken over. I need you to get rid of them. As he spoke, Jaren looked around the interior of the building. The Morgat must have caught him looking, and nodded in approval. I see you've taken notice of my restoration. You should recognize it. A fully restored 20th century human hotel. Complete in all its decadence. He pointed with delight to a crystal chandelier hanging above them. I don't understand, said Jaren. Why would you rebuild a human structure? I'll admit that it isn't to my tastes, he replied. But some among my race find your culture fascinating. I'm going to run an authentically human boutique hotel. I can't understand why they would prefer this, said Jaren. I'm a human myself, and I have always felt more at home in your race's sterile metallic environments than my race's... Opulence. <laughs> That's quite rich, coming from a human, said the Morgat. Do you fancy yourself one of us? Jaren could feel the blood rush to his face. I would never presume. The Morgat laughed again. <laughs> Enough, he said. You have a job to do. I'll leave you to your work. The basement stairs are over there. The Morgat pointed to a doorway in the back corner of the room before himself retreating up the master stairwell and into the office. As he reached the bottom of the basement stairs, he reached into his backpack and removed his rifle. In centuries past, exterminators killed mice and insects. They would have found such a large weapon unnecessary. Modern-day exterminators had it worse. His vermin were bigger, smarter, more dangerous. 
Many of his colleagues went out on jobs never to return. Jaron began stalking from room to room in the darkness. Suddenly, his ears perked up, having heard a whimper coming from a large storage closet in the back of the basement. His prey. He crept over and threw the door open, and a loud scream came from inside. And there before him sat his vermin, huddled together in a clump in the middle of the room. They were not insects, not rodents. They were primates. Humans. Jaron raised his rifle. He heard the sound of his own voice speaking coldly. You shouldn't be hiding here, squatting on Morgat property. You should be registered and living in the ghettos like the rest. The humans gave no response, and for a minute there was an agonizing silence. Suddenly, a man he had not seen in the corner lunged out from the shadows. Without thinking, Jaron discharged three rounds into the man's chest, dropping him where he stood. Daddy! The cry came, loud and abrupt and a little girl broke free of her mother's embrace and rushed over to the corpse in tears. Look in the mirror, said the girl's mother, her eyes widened by terror, revulsion, and pity. You're not one of them. You're one of us. Stop this. Her words evoked a familiar feeling, images of his mother's tearful face the morning that he chose to join the civil service. She had tried to fight it, to say that he was just a confused boy, that he really belonged here with his people. He remembered feeling profound loss as he was escorted away. Jaron blinked. In a moment, the internal conflict had passed. These were not his people, not now, not ever. No, I'm not one of you, Jaron said to the woman, choking back on his bile. He pulled the trigger. First the mother, then the little girl, then the others. He left none alive. When the job was done, he once again climbed the basement stairs, his face covered in blood. He was anxious to report back to the Morgat, to tell him what a good job he had done. He knew that he could never be one of them. But maybe, just maybe, the Morgat would hire him to work in the hotel or be his assistant. Who knows? In time, maybe he could... That was fast, the Morgat said. Well done. Thank you, sir, Jaron replied. I was wondering... Yes, yes, of course, your payment, said the Morgat, misunderstanding his intent. He handed him a slip of credits. Jaron was about to speak up again when the Morgat dropped a hammer. Now get out of my sight, he said. Just because I employ vermin to kill vermin doesn't mean I want to keep them around afterwards. Jaron's heart sank in his stomach at the words. He took his leave of the Morgat. He would never be one of them. He would never be human. He was an exterminator, and that would have to suffice. <laughs> There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Eric's. Eric, thank you so much for that. And Michael, what a little narration. Wow, man. Thank you so much. So, on to the interview this week. And like I say, it's just, I really enjoyed 
talking to Professor Christopher Riley. Chris has, me and Chris, we'll lay that down, you know, I can call him Chris there instead of profess. Chris has got this idea to send out, you know, get a message to Voyager. These are the NASA Voyagers 1 and 2 that kind of went out in 1977. And there's a good chance we might be able to get a kind of a, a little worded document up to them, you know, just to tell what, you know, give anybody who finds this these spacecraft in whenever, you know, just to have a little update on, you know, how Earth has changed since we sent those up. So I'm going to play this now and I'll have a little chat afterwards. Chris, it is lovely to have you on board Starship Sova. Listen, thank you so much for taking time out and coming on. Uh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure, Tony. Nice to be here. Well, Chris, just, you know, I'm, I'm not saying, you know, we'll forget things, but if you don't mind, just bring up the speed on Voyager because it's been... It's been a few years since we actually sent them up. Uh, yeah, coming up for 40 years, actually. So they were launched, um, the, the pair of them, within a few weeks of each other back in 1977 to take advantage of a, a rare planetary alignment that would allow them to make flybys of all the outer gas giant planets and their moons in one single 12-year mission. Um, now, the thing about the trajectory that they were they were on is that um, with each close flyby of one of these giant planets, um, they were essentially eventually um, accelerated onto a trajectory that would take them both out of the solar system and into the galaxy beyond. So today they're still hurtling away from us at something like 40,000 kilometers an hour. They're both around 20 billion kilometers <laughs> from Earth right now. That's about 18 and a half light hours away from Earth, which is an extraordinary fact, if you think about it, that these these human objects have have travelled so far and will continue to rush away from us, um, kind of for eternity. Was was that always the, the idea, though? Just to kind of let them go? And I mean, surely when they were kind of when they were getting built, they didn't think forty years down the line we'll be still be able to kind of get messages and contact from them. No, in, in fact, um, the, one of the greatest challenges when they were first proposed in the nineteen sixties. Um, in fact, by um, an engineer at the Jet Propulsion Labs at the time called Gary Flandro, the, cha- the challenge for Flandro was persuading people at JPL that you could build a spacecraft that could last, I mean, even one year because their, their missions at that point, you know, were for months only to the, the nearest planets, Mars and Venus at that time. So the thought that you could build something that could last even a couple of years, maybe three years to get as far as Jupiter was, you know, kind of, on the edge of possible, the thought that you could build something that would last 12 years to get all the way to Neptune, you know, forget it. So so when he first suggested it, he was just kind of laughed out of the room. The fact they're still going 40 years later, as you, as you say, and in fact, there's five experiments still working on them that we get a trickle of data from is just breathtaking. I mean, you've got to ask the question, have they got long to live? You know, like or what we can perceive of long to live or will eventually just, you know, the equipment's not good enough to send data back or will it just batteries run out and fade away and just drift? Yeah, so so you've, you've put your finger on it. The, the batteries, as you call them, they're actually these things called RTGs, radio thermoisotopic generators. And uh, they convert um, the decay of an element called plutonium uh, into um, uh, the, the, the heat that that produces. And they turn that into electrical power. And that's been slowly dwindling as they've their mission has carried on. Um, so um, that that power will keep them in contact with us till around 
about the year 2023. Now, um, technically, um, NASA say they could keep tracking them till till the year 2057. But as I say, the electrical power by 2023 will have will pretty much stop them communicating back to us. And then they'll continue um, on these trajectories out of the solar system as these kind of dead monuments to human exploration. And that's um, where this wonderful idea of the uh, the golden record that Carl Sagan and his colleagues put together back in 1977 comes from because they will continue out there into the galaxy as these these tributes to, um, to, to, to humankind. And so these golden records that are on them have captured um, uh, a sort of sample of human culture in the form of music and photographs and greetings from human beings in lots of languages from around the earth. Um, and so they represent us, if you like. Uh, the chances are, Tony, they'll outlive um, humankind and they'll possibly even outlive the earth as these relics of of when we existed in the uh, in the universe. I mean, it's, when when you talk like that, honestly, Chris, it gets the hairs on your back of your neck. You know what I mean? It's just like the excitement and the, it's like the wonder. Like it's almost like being kidified again. Do you know what I mean? You just like the, the excitement of it. I tell you, what I love though is who's come up with the idea to kind of let's get some more data on there. Let's add a little bit more. Who's actually come up with that idea? Well, when I, I just finished finished writing, I just finished writing um, a Haynes manual actually to, to the Voyagers. I, I started working with Haynes, uh, the the the, uh, the publisher, a few few years ago. I did one for the Apollo hardware, the Saturn V, and the lunar lander, and the command module, and so on. That was that was kind of fun, and um, wrote one on the lunar rover a few years later, which the, the three still up on the moon. In case you know one ever comes back, there's a manual for you to work out how to use it. And and it occurred to me when I was writing that actually, do you know what? Wouldn't it be great to write one on Voyager? Because the whole point of sending them out there is that, who knows, maybe one day they might be found by another spacefaring civilization. And so I wanted to write something that was a kind of manual, a guide to who sent them, what they were doing, um, and what how you decipher this golden record. Because it's, it's written in this kind of language that... Um, uh, they've attempted to be universal. So it's written in a language of mathematics and binary and figures and drawings and things. So I went through everything, Tony, that was on these golden records when I was writing this book. And it occurred to me that a lot of the photographs that, are, that appear on it, there's about 122 photos on the, that are encoded onto this record. They're, they're a sort of snapshot of, of us and society um, from the 1970s. Now, I don't mean there's lots of flared trousers and things on it. It's not that kind of record they're more universal and global the pictures they were they were taken from the united nations archive and from the national geographic photo archives so but they capture us at a time when there were certain um social issues that we were grappling with one of which was the beginnings of our recognition that the climate was changing perhaps due to our our own actions and whether we could do something to mitigate that um and that uh, we were aware our population was going up as well and the thing I thought was, do you know what, 40 years later, of course, both of those issues are still uh, at the forefront of our concerns, global warming particularly, but also population explosion. The population's pushing twice what it was in the 60, late 60s, early 70s now, with over 7 billion people on Earth. So I thought, why, why don't we send a little kind of postscript, a little message, a text message uh, it's the length of about seven tweets i've tried to keep it brief to about a thousand 
characters, a thousand ASCII characters, to mean that it could be transmitted to the Voyagers relatively easily. Um, and could we encapsulate in a thousand characters a message that says how society has changed in that 40 years since the Voyagers left? So this doesn't change the golden records. They're fixed. They will always be as they are when they left Earth. But what it does is it just sticks into the memory banks of Voyager while we still can. This extra little postscript note on how wonderfully successful the Voyagers were, as you began by asking to point out that they're 40 years on. We're still in contact with them. They've left the solar system. But back on Earth, here we are. We're we're more interconnected than we, we, we were back then with the Internet and our population is growing. And we're still grappling with the challenges and the benefits that come with that. And I thought, why don't we why don't we try and persuade NASA to do that? Now, I, I'm not arrogant enough to think that the message I've suggested in the book, it's just one suggestion, is the one that should go. So I thought, why why don't we open this up to um, to everyone to, to try and write in a thousand characters what you would like? to send to Voyager. And then we'll just send everything to, to NASA and say, look, here, here is here is a suggestion made by hundreds, maybe thousands of people. Why don't you pick one and send it um, without telling them who, whose it is? And I thought there was something quite special in that, perhaps. You, Chris, have you got, like, say, sway on, on this? You know, can you get into NASA and say, listen, you know, can we do this? Or have you got to just go through loads of red tape? Or is it kind of... Is it like a really a bit of an impossible dream to get this kind of message up there? Do you know? Well, you know, the thing about um, any big organisation is that it's always a challenge to do anything because you've got to clear it with lots of people. And one of the beautiful things about the original Golden Record project was that that Carl Sagan and his colleagues just damn well did it. And they um, and the engineers working on Voyager at the time, a man particularly, particularly one man called John Cassani, they just did it and they bolted this record to the outside of the spacecraft and off it went and you know if we if we back then if we'd sort of tried to do it by committee it would never have happened and so what what i i thought was the best approach here was to essentially open up this big kind of public debate and see how much sort of interest there is in in in, in such a um, a gesture a human gesture uh and then essentially hand hand it over to someone on the voyager project to just probably just do it and they might not tell anyone they've done it because that's sometimes the best way of of doing something but i just thought it was worth trying to kick it off is there interest in it chris do you know if there is interest in this idea well you know whenever um i suggest and mention anything about voyager whether it's a public lecture i give or a film i made a, a film with dallas campbell for bbc4 a few years ago uh, on on the voyager story um where Whenever anything like that, um, from the book to the film or, or lecture, is appears in the public domain, there's always interest in it. There's something really beguiling, Tony, about the Voyagers, because there's very few times in human history that, as a species, we've done something that I think is of galactic significance. And, of course, the Apollo missions, I think, fit that bracket that, that life on Earth emerged, got technological enough to set foot and leave a footprint on another world and return to earth but but building something that we've hurled right out of the solar system the planetary system that we emerged in is also something that's of galactic significance and there's something that you know does put the hairs up, up on, on your on the back of your neck when you think about it in those terms and so i i don't think there's any doubt that this is a 
potentially an, an idea that, that fires people up and gets their imagination going. Everyone who hears about it loves it. You know, I was just listening to there, Chris, and you said the gold discs are just, you know, they're just bolt- they're not just bolted to the side. I, th- I, th- I thought they would have been kind of tucked away somewhere safe and secure inside. Are they just sitting on out the outside of the, the, the actual holes of them? Yes, that's right. There's, the, <laughs> there's, a, there's a, a bus, a 12-sided um, uh, hull, if you like, if, uh, uh, that the, the, the rest of the spacecraft sort of is fixed to, so the big dish and all the science instruments and the power supply and stuff, they all hang off this 12-sided sort of shape. And the golden record is placed with the side with most of the pictures facing inwards to protect it as much as possible, and then the side with the music facing outwards. And then on top of that is an aluminium uh, cover, a bit like a, a very elaborate record album cover, if you like, that's got the instructions for playing the record, <laughs> and um, how you might decipher what's on it, um, etched into it. Now, space is a pretty benign environment. And so um, they, the, those that built this rate it for about a billion years, a thousand million years. During that time, there will be some degradation from cosmic rays and dust particles to that outer protective aluminium cover. But potentially, the, the, this golden disk inside, which is pretty robust, will remain intact for that incredibly deep time. You know, Chris, it, it, it's so exciting, honestly. It's just so exciting. But the, the kind of big thing is, will, will it work? Do you know, will getting data up there, will that happen? Or will it work? Or, or will it, is there a chance that it could all just go horribly wrong, you know? Uh, well, the, you know, the, the challenge, Tony, is still talking to the Voyagers because um, they're being almost 20 billion kilometers from earth they have a very very weak signal that's trying to come back to us and we've got to be very astute and observant in how we pick this up and talk back to them so to give you some idea the the transmitters on the spacecraft are only about 20 watts each and if you think about a a light bulb a bright light bulb in your house is 100 watts so 20 watts is about the same as a a, the light bulb in in a refrigerator in a fridge now for, for that sort of power to get back to us 20 billion kilometers from 20 billion kilometers away, by the time it reaches Earth, it's a billionth of a billionth of a watt in strength. So that's why the bit rate, the amount of information we can scream back at them um, to keep in touch with them is very, very low. It's only 40 bits per second. So the difficulty is coming up with a, a, a short enough message that won't take up all of NASA's um, big dish time because they have this deep space network, these huge dishes around the world that they use to talk to all of their missions. And if we were to upload, say, a JPEG, uh, a, a still image maybe of something that Voyager had taken of, say, Jupiter on the way out, it would take days and days to get that kind of um, image back up to up to Voyager. But to send a short text message, say, a thousand characters along, even at 40 bits per second, you should be able to do that in about three minutes. And then with the right kind of header information on it, you could write that to a memory bank on the spacecraft that's not being used anymore. And that's that's the challenge. But I, it's not beyond the realms of the engineers to be able to achieve something like that from what I can see. Is there, Chris, anyone against this idea? You know, like, like you say, these are kind of almost in, in law now, you know, sacred items, you know, going out to to kind of deep space. Is there anyone thinking just 
don't mess with this? You know, any organisation or body or person? Well, I think anyone that understands the idea hasn't had any disagreement with it. I'm not suggesting we make any changes to the golden records. They are sacred, as you say, and they are they are just as they were when they left. And you can't change them. I mean, they're just physical metal records. You know, all I'm saying is, why not add a postscript? You know, just an extra little thousand characters, as I say, that just encapsulates the last 40 years of, of, of our society and how successful these voyages have been. Why why wouldn't you? We rarely have any opportunities to fling things out of the solar system. There's only a handful of spacecraft that, that, that have achieved this and only two right now that we're in contact with still. The, 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 the mission, the, the, the spacecraft um, New Horizons that was sent to photograph Pluto um, uh, earlier this year, that is also on a trajectory which will take it out of the, the solar system. But these are rare events in our history of human exploration. So you're, if you're front, confronted with an opportunity to just to send that extra little note on Voyager, why wouldn't you? I've not found anyone that thinks it's a bad idea. You know what, about my mind, when you kind of think about NASA and the Voyager, like you say, these things have been going like 40 years. How do the, does NASA itself keep, you know, keep track of, have they got like the little Voyager office right down, you know, in the old building kind of thing? Or is it, is everything just kind of brought in and there's different organisations within NASA that look after all this stuff? Or is it, you know, it, it just seems a kind of, a kind of bit of a mix in NASA that you do, I don't understand, you know, who looks after Voyager down there? Oh, well, the Voyager missions are managed from uh, the brilliant Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is um, in Pasadena in Los Angeles. And you're quite right. They have a little office that's that's the Voyager <laughs> office where where the scientists that still work on it and the engineers um, do their do their um, their work. And it requires daily um, housekeeping still to keep the Voyagers uh, in good health. Um, and uh, they've got to be sensitive to their age now that they're um, they're, they're the grand grand sort of dams, if you like, of, of robotic solar system exploration, and they need, they need sort of treating with sensitivity. The team, though, that work with them also work on other other missions um, as well because you'd want to, you know, spread your, your career around a few of these missions. They're such high-risk things to be involved with. Um, but that's that's essentially where it's managed from, and, and um, Earth is in daily contact with, with the Voyagers, and so we keep tabs on them, and um, we get this data that's sent back from these five science instruments, which just tell us a bit about the, the magnetic and um, um, and par- charged particle properties of this unique bit of space that they've pushed out into. Voyager one pushed out through the influence of the of the sun's uh, heliosphere back in um, uh, in August 2012, and Voyager two is 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 on its way there, and this is a place. That, that humans have never extended their exploration reach to. So every second that passes, as we're talking now, we're, we're pushing into new frontiers and the voyagers are sending back data on what they're finding. It's just, it's fascinating. You know, what I love, Chris, as well, is, like you say, you've wrote the manual. Do you know what I mean? How, how do you get that kind of job and how do you, how do you find out everything about it to write like a man, you know, because these, like, these are all iconic manuals you know when you get when you have an old Vauxhall Cavalier you go and get a Haynes you know book to kind of take the bits to work it out you've wrote the one on on Voyager how do you find out all this gather all this information to to change you know a gasket should I say 
<laughs> yeah, well, you, you have to work with um, the organization that built these things. And, uh, and one of NASA's great gifts to the world is that they make a lot of this information on these endeavors they do on behalf of us as a species. They make them publicly accessible. Before the Internet, they would post you photos from these missions if you wrote to them saying, you know, you were, you were interested. And today, you know, they share all of this stuff through their many, many web pages and websites. And so actually it's a, it's a task in writing these manuals of trawling through a lot of the original old paperwork that was put together to communicate how these, these probes were built, both for the press and for the engineers that were working on them at the time. And it's also um, a chance and an opportunity, and I'm very thankful for this, um, to talk to the engineers that actually were responsible for them in the first place, because many of them are still alive. And the lovely thing about writing these manuals is that you get to collaborate with these great kind of gods of their subjects that, that did this incredible thing back almost 40 years ago and sent these these robots out. And um, so it's a combination of research, I guess, Tony. You know, when you're, when you're actually doing this research and, you know, and you're kind of finding out things, do you, do you stop and wonder and think, you know, that's so easy. It's just this bit of, you know, or is it very technical stuff that they were, they were building, you know, 40 years ago? Well, it's ingenious. I would put it that way. When you look at some of the sort of um, challenges that they had, we talked a bit about the difficulties of building a craft that would last that long in this environment and keep powered and keep facing the earth and, and collecting the data and communicating with us. The, when you look at those challenges that they set themselves at a time when they didn't frankly know how to do that, but they then worked out how to, that's what's kind of breathtaking, I suppose. And that's the thing that I think always inspires me when I'm writing these books, which are a massive celebration of human ingenuity at their heart. Are these, Chris, like worldwide, these books, or is it just basically in the UK these are published? Oh, no, the Haynes manuals are available around the world. Right, so, right. Um, often, you know, if you go to museums in other countries, particularly ones relevant to the subjects you've written about, yes, they're there, they're there for sale and these days online as well. So people people buy them and write to me from all over the world. I, I, don't, I don't know whether you're interested, but I, I wondered if I should read my, my suggested thousand characters. Yes, please, that would be fantastic. So, so here goes. Um, more than 40 years after leaving Earth, this spacecraft named Voyager had broken into interstellar space 20 billion kilometers from its home planet and was still powered and collecting useful data on its new environment. During this time, our society back on Earth had changed significantly, its population doubling to over 7 billion and the environmental pressures of overcrowding and the challenges of living sustainably and peacefully together had grown more urgent. Our technologies had become increasingly digital over these decades, raising our computing capability to push the frontiers of our knowledge faster and accelerating the, our development as a single interconnected global civilization with all the advantages and problems that this brings. With onboard power dwindling, the uploading of this message is one of the last contacts we will have with this spacecraft. We hope that one day, in finding our Voyager, you will know of our existence and our desire, like yours, to explore and better understand this universe we have shared with you. With peace and hope from the people of planet Earth, December 2023. Honestly, man, especially with the ending as well, you know, because that's when the game, it, it 
it dies off. You know, the, the kind of the power goes and that's it. Oh, Christmas. Well, I, as I'm saying, that's not necessarily the, 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 uh, the message that should go, but I love to encourage people to, to send us their own. I was going to say, wait, can, can someone just sit down, write a thousand, it's a thousand characters, because I thought it was a thousand words and I was getting a bit poetic and, you know, it's going to start writing a whole novel there for you. But just a thousand characters, can people just send them to you? Yeah, so we're just building a Facebook app, which will be live, um, I think, about the 31st of October. I'm not sure when you're planning on um, going, going live with this broadcast, um, Tony, but um, if we can time it right, then that will be live, and I can send you the URL. Oh, yes, yes, we'll, we'll do that, no problem. Brilliant. And so there'll be a little box that will limit it to a 1,000 characters on that page, and essentially you, you, you've got to be pithy and succinct <laughs> with your words in terms of summarising the last 40 years, and... But have a go, and yeah, we're going to collect as many as we can, and then present them to to NASA. And there's no reason why, you know, one of those messages written by an impartial representative of the human race might not one day be be sent up there. That's the goal. Oh, Chris, it's just it's mind blowing. I mean, it's just like child's wonder. Do you know what I mean? Just the, just the, the 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 possibility of someone writing something and getting it on there, and getting and it's just good, like you say, it could go on forever and ever. Longer than the you know the Earth. Yeah, I mean, having even the most tenuous of contacts with a with an object that will outlive the Earth just leaves me breathless. And so you know, it's just uh, an amazing thought, as you say. You know what, Chris? You get paid for this. This is your day job. How fantastic is that? <laughs> well, this is a voluntary effort, I must say. No one's paying me to do this, but uh, it's a lovely thing to come up with an idea and then, you know, be able to talk to the likes of you about it and to share share the idea around the world and see if we can kind of make something happen, isn't it? Oh, it's excellent. Listen, Chris, I am just chuffed a bit that you came on, took the time out. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure, Tony. I enjoyed talking with you. I hope we can stay in touch. Yes, definitely. Well, look after yourself. You too. And um, I'll let you know once we've got the URL ready. Thanks, Tony. Right. Thank you. You take good care. You too. Bye for now. There you go. I hope you liked that little interview. It was when I spoke to Chris, you know what I mean? I, I put the phone down off, you know, stop me recording. And I was just buzzing. Do you know what I mean? Just that thought of, you know, maybe not me, but someone out there in the world getting a message up to that craft. And I think it's what Chris is. This could, this message could go on in this spaceship. These spaceships could just drift for longer than the earth is around. Do you know what I mean? And, Someone in the world there now, just sitting typing away a little hundred word, little bit of text can get up there and get it on. And that is, man, that is just so exciting. I've got links on the website if you want to come over. Chris has told us that there's, there's actually like a proper little place there now so you can kind of upload y- your document, you know. And this is like a hundred words, man. And there's quirky ones as well if you get sign up to our newsletter. You know, there's a quirky one in there. And I've noticed on the website, you know what I mean? There's quite a, don't, you know, like don't come to earth, please. You know what I mean? Stay away. There's all sorts of messages going on there. And to be able to do that, do you know what I mean? Just to kind of sit down, and it might even take 10 minutes, man. Just 10 minutes, you hit it on the nail on the head, and your message is picked, and it could be uploaded there. And like I say, Crystal is, do you know, if 
we were talking in the interview, you know, he kind of, he writes oodles of books, but I got myself, you know, perks of the job. I got myself the, the, the NASA Voyager one, the latest one by Chris. And this is them Haynes, you know, normally like to say the car manual ones, what we're talking about in the, in the, in the interview. And man, if you do want to take, you know, take away the kind of the back sprocket on the kind of, you know, the, the arm of one of Voyagers, you know, it'll tell you in here, but it tells you so much about, you know, everything, you know, about, even the messages, even like the spoken languages that have been put on the disc, the pictures, it's showing you the actual, the pictures that are on, you know, what songs, what music's been on. It's just, and it even like, you know, it really shows you in depth the pictures of this disc. And like what Chris was saying, this thing was just, you know, when you have a look at the pictures, it was just bolted, these discs were just bolted on the side. Do you know what I mean? And they're just about, do you know what I mean? The kind of, there's the last, dying gasp of battery left left do you know what i mean just to kind of get a message up there and just then they'll go and once they've gone they've gone and you know what i mean but listen if you want to get a, a going back to the coffee table book this one is just you know it's like stepping back in history there is some fascinating things you know it's it's what chris was saying in the interview just exciting times you know what i mean and it's just, I, I thought it'd be kind of you know just kind of hobbled together but it was just it was a, just a different era in kind of the, the space times. And to realise that they're still going from 1977. They're still out there transmitting. There's still an office back. You know what I mean? There's a little office there. You know what I mean? It must be quiet and dusty. You know what I mean? Just morning. Morning, George. Morning. You know, that kind of thing. But honestly... Get that book and just dip into history. Like I say, I'll put the links on. There's two links. You know, Chris has sorted it all out. There's two links there. There's a Facebook link and there's actually a web page as well where you can go and, you know, put your words on. Come over to Starships over and do that. And you just the chance, man, to get words into space that will last however long, man. However long. Because we know how big, you know, our galaxy is. Never mind the universe. Do you know what I mean? Oh, we can but dream. <laughs> right, under the main fiction, and it is The Merger by Sunil Patel, which originally appeared in The Book Smugglers. Sunil Patel is a Bay Area fiction writer and playwright who has written about everything from ghostly cows to talking beer. His plays have been performed at San Francisco Theatre Pub and San Francisco Olympians Festival. And his fiction has appeared in Saturday Night Reader, Fireside Magazine, Orson Scott's Card, Intergalactic Medicine Show, Flash Fiction Online and, like I say, The Book Smugglers. He also reviews books at Lightspeed and he's an assistant editor of Mothership Zeta. His favourite things to consume include nachos, milkshakes and narrative. Find out more and I'll put links on if you want to kind of go over there and see Sunil Patel's work. Come over to the website, that would be fantastic. This story is narrated by Al Barkley and Al has worked extensively over 15 years, most notably playing alongside James McAvoy, Ian Michael Sheen, Stephen Fry's bright young things. I've mentioned this before. Go on there, Al. And with David Hewless in Luke Besson's The Lady, he will be in the West End at the Art Theatre this December playing Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. He's also drank two bottles of gin with Peter O'Toole and danced the night away in Camden with Amy Winehouse. Oh my God, we are the, the bio of the of the month. No, no doubt about it. 
So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. The Merger by Sunil Patel Read by Al Barclay Paresh came across the alien while hurrying to catch the 745 bus. It was much quieter than the 815 bus, which always contained a group of rowdy teenage boys who asked him about his day at the Quickie Mart as if his fine button-down shirt and leather laptop bag weren't a clue that he'd been a valued programmer at Oracle for five years, thank you very much. It looked like it would be the 815 bus tonight, however, because standing in a parking lot behind his office was a six-foot-tall gelatinous blob with horns. Congratulations on your exciting opportunity, declared the blob, in a voice that sounded like a mix between sandpaper and nails on a chalkboard. It appeared to be wholly ignorant of the way its voice sounded, its words infused with the joyful sincerity Paresh found unsettling. Excuse me, asked Paresh, who had never encountered an alien before, but decided that if the first thing they did when they invaded was congratulate you, they couldn't be all that bad. We have identified you as a potential host body. We find your body very desirable. No one was allowed to find his body desirable but his wife, damn it. Host body? Our analysts have determined that your body's complexion, specific gravity and the length of its extremities are optimal for our experience. Sita had never commented on his specific gravity, but Paresh took it as a compliment. She had commented on the length of his extremity. We are prepared to offer substantial compensation equivalent to the value and potential value of your body. We understand that you may have had other offers, but hope that you accept ours. The blob was glowing with excitement now. At least Paresh thought it was excitement. It could have been arousal. What if I don't want to be a host body? We are prepared to offer substantial compensation equivalent to the value and potential value of your body. Paresh repeated himself. The blob repeated itself. This wasn't getting him anywhere. Look, thanks for the offer, but I have to catch the bus. The blob looked at him quizzically. Paresh didn't understand how that was possible since he wasn't sure where its eyes were, but it managed... As our bylaws do not allow for hostile takeover, we must act in the best interests of the shareholders and prevent dilution of market share. Accordingly, please note that refusal of this offer may result in the destruction of your planet. As added incentive, we have increased our offer of compensation by 12.5%. Paresh chose to ignore the phrase destruction of your planet because it was absurd, even though his bar for absurd had recently risen. Instead, he focused on the exciting opportunity, which included money. Sitter had been wanting to remodel the kitchen, or as she called it, her cooking laboratory. And their car was old, an embarrassment among his colleagues. Paresh raised his eyebrow. What kind of compensation are we talking here? The blob jumped up and down, making disgusting squishy noises with every impact on the sidewalk. Are you willing to enter into negotiations with the Blob Tech Snob co-incorporated interplanetary conglomerate, herein after referred to as the Blob Snob? He was definitely going to miss his bus. The 845 bus was pretty quiet, at least. I'm willing to hear you out. We believe this will be a beneficial arrangement for us both. Please allow me to contact our chairman and we will begin negotiations this very evening. This evening? Where do I go? I'll have to tell my wife where. 
Agreement to begin negotiations constitutes acceptance of a non-disclosure agreement. Please do not speak of this impending transaction to any uninvolved parties, as it is considered proprietary information and may result in serious legal consequences. The blob had stopped glowing. It was possibly angry, possibly calm. Paresh couldn't tell. The negotiations will begin this very evening at a location to be determined. And then the blob disappeared. Paresh expected a spectacular buzz and light show, but it was just gone, like it had never been there at all. Apprehensive, Paresh searched the parking lot for any other aliens before rushing to the bus stop. He watched the 8.15 bus leave with a sigh and sat on the bench alone. The 8.45 bus arrived and he got on. Hey, Apu! He wasn't the only one who'd been delayed. Paresh walked home from the bus stop, laptop bag in hand. He clutched the handle tightly, imagining using it as a weapon against those stupid kids with their stupid hats and their stupid skateboards. Well, they didn't actually have skateboards, but he thought they should. Although if they had skateboards, they wouldn't be riding a bus. He definitely thought they should have skateboards. Two blocks up and one block to the left, 300 feet, and your destination is on the right. No one ever heard him say it, but it made him feel at home. Cesar would wonder why he was late. The blob thing had warned him not to talk about the impending transaction, but was he allowed to tell her that he'd met an alien? It had never specified. He could leave out the details. They kept you late, said Sita, opening the door. Or she could do that. Paresh nodded and kissed her, hating that he'd lied to his wife, but grateful not to have to see her look of disbelief when he told her the truth. When he learnt more about the offer, he'd come clean. He took off his shoes, placed his laptop bag in a closet, and went straight to the kitchen. Turkey chilli pizza in the oven, Cesar said, pointing. That's not a real thing. It is, too, a real thing, and you're going to eat it. I met an alien today, Paresh blurted out. Paresh, that's not polite. They're called immigrants, said Sitter. Your company changed their hiring policy? Yes, he said, flushing. He was the absolute worst at keeping secrets. At the department retreat, he'd had a baby picture guessing game, and every time someone pointed to his picture, he giggled. Where were they from? Ecuador, said Paresh, naming the first country that came to mind. Maybe he should get the shovel in his garage if he was going to keep digging himself deeper into this hole. Very cool, she said. I've never been to Ecuador. You should find out how it is. We could take a vacation. The oven dinged and saved Paresh from having to continue the conversation. He'd already begun to make up fake facts about Ecuador. Their main export is Comquats. The capital city of Ecuador City has the rarest Dali in the world. Everyone owns a pet capybara. Sisa knew more than Parrish about most things, but she taught biology, not geography. She set a plate in front of him. Already sliced, the turkey chili pizza resembled a pizza in the way a veggie dog resembled a hot dog. Parrish suspected Sita had applied the principles of aggressive mimicry to food. She'd been gushing about the anglerfish a few nights ago. Paresh took a bite and appreciated the smoky taste of chilli, but stopped chewing as he was assailed by an unexpected flavour. Is that mustard? Ioli garlic mustard sauce. Do you like it? There was no sense in starting to tell the truth now. He was on a roll. It's great, he said, swallowing then, almost choking as a face appeared on his pizza. Greetings, human, the face said, with a voice like nails on sandpaper. It was missing a part of its mouth, which Paresh had eaten. He looked up at Sita, who didn't react. We are ready to begin the negotiation process. Not now, he hissed. 
Not now what? said Sitter. That I was having this really great idea and I wished it would come later tonight when I was alone. Caesar took a bite of her own pizza. Well, I know how that goes. I hate when I come up with a great lesson plan when I'm driving. I can't write it down. Please confirm the rescheduling of the negotiations, Paresh's pizza said. Paresh had never eaten a whole pizza so fast in his entire life. Later that evening in his office, Paresh turned around and there was the horned blob thing. He assumed it was the same one, but he couldn't be sure. When it spoke, however, the voice was unmistakable. We apologise for the previous inconvenience, it said. You can't just talk to a man through his dinner, said Paresh. It's rude and unprofessional. He ran his finger through his hair in frustration. At dinner, but not through dinner. May we begin the negotiations, it said. Paresh checked that the door was closed. Your partner will not hear our discussion. This enclosure has been sound-locked for confidentiality. Good. Now explain to me what it is you want from me and what you are prepared to offer. The Blobtech Snobco incorporated into planetary conglomerate heretofore and hereinafter referred to as the Blob Snob would like to acquire your body. I'm using it at the moment. We believe that your body has a great deal of potential and is being undervalued in the market. Market? What market? Are there more of you? That information is not relevant to this discussion. Fine, said Paresh. He had enough trouble with one alien. He didn't need to think about more. If you acquire my body, when do I get it back? Upon corporeal incorporation, your body would become a wholly owned subsidiary of the Blab Snob, with partial autonomy on weekends, vesting over four solar years. Some of that sounded good. Some of that sounded like gibberish. And how much would you pay me? The current offer is 0.0001 United States of American cents per cell. A fraction of a penny. But Paresh figured he had a lot of cells in his body, maybe even 10 million, which would be one whole cent. I'm afraid that's not enough, he said. Speaking of undervalued, <laughs> this was some kind of joke, surely. They didn't understand numbers or money or something. The blob's horns began to glow pulsating lightly. Then they stopped. The Blob Snob Board of Directors has agreed to determine a higher, more suitable offer for you, Mr. Gupta. We will contact you when the new offer is ready. Can I discuss this with my wife? I, I don't feel comfortable, he came this close to saying, selling my body, before he caught himself uh, accepting an offer without her input. The Blob's horns pulsated again. As preliminary negotiations have concluded, you may consult your partner in this matter. We are aware that by law she owns half of your body and thus must approve any acquisition. Paresh was going to dispute this system, but the blob continued. Have a good evening, Mr. Gupta. We look forward to conducting a successful business transaction. Then it disappeared. Paresh didn't bring the topic up in bed that night. He knew better than to disturb Sita's reading. At breakfast, he asked her, How many cells are in a human body? She swallowed her blueberry sweet potato waffle and said, That depends on a body, and are we counting intestinal flora? Paresh wasn't sure what that was. My body, all the cells in it, including the intestinal things, I guess. Stand up, she said. She stood up herself.
Paresh stood and stepped away from the table. Sito looked him up and down, and Paresh felt self-conscious about the months he hadn't gone to the gym. Now give me a spin, she said, twirling her finger in the air. Reluctantly, he turned around in a circle, still feeling her eyes on him. When he was done, she nodded at him to sit down and took her seat. Sita cut another piece of waffle and ate it. She pulled out her phone and did some quick calculations. I'd say you've got about 10 trillion cells in your body. Paresh almost choked on his waffle. Did, did you say trillion? Like a million billions, she said. Or a billion millions. He moved the decimal point in his head. They'd offered him 10 million dollars. And he'd asked for more. Sita, I have something to tell you. He told her. After a moment, she put her finger to her nose and pointed to him. So when you said last night that you'd met an alien? He nodded. Okay. First of all, here's a new lesson plan hitting me at breakfast when I can't write it down, but I'll wing it. My kids won't mind if we talk about aliens instead of the Golgi apparatus today. No, no, said Parash. You, you can't tell anyone. Why? Do they have ray guns? I don't know what they have. They don't even have hands, so ray guns are out of the question. But the alien thing, the blab snob representative, the, the blab snob rep, threatened to destroy the planet if I said no. They might do that if we talk about the deal. Sita rolled her eyes. That planet-destroying shit is absurd. It's got to be a bluff. They want your body like I do, and they're going to pay for it. She put her head in her hands. That is not where I wanted that sentence to go. Paresh chuckled. Yes, I went down that road too. She gestured at him with the piece of waffle on her fork, syrup dripping on the table. You should find out the details of the deal. What happens to you and how you get the money. Don't sign anything until you read all the fine print. Paresh promised not to sign anything until he read all the fine print. At the time, he meant it. The blob appeared that afternoon in the Oracle bathroom. Thankfully, Paresh had completed his business. This is highly inappropriate, he said. You did not leave appropriate hours and means by which to contact you, said the blob. Paresh had forgotten how discordant his voice was. Hoping no one had heard it, he went to lock the door, only to realise that the door had no lock. The blob continued, We have increased our offer by 10% and have prepared the paperwork. Let me see it, he said. And a tiny wormhole opened up between them. Out popped three stacks of paper which hovered in the air, white, yellow and pink. Please sign and return the white copy, said the blob. The yellow copy is for you to keep. And the pink copy? The pink copy belongs to your partner. Don't you think that's kind of sexist? The blob blinked. So that's where its eyes were. You may take the pink copy if it is sexiest. Paresh plucked the stack of white paper out of the air and began to look it over. He knew he ought to have a lawyer review it. At the very least, someone like Carey and Contracts could take a look. But how could he even begin to explain what it was for? He didn't want people at work talking about him like he was crazy. He read quickly. Someone could walk in on them at any minute. He had to give the blob snub credit. They were pretty fluent in legalese. Paresh, sadly, was not. Had the contract been written in Java, he would have stood a chance at comprehending what they intended to do with his body. As it was, he understood there'd be a transition period following the completion of the transaction in which the terms of the possession would be finalised. Paresh thought of what he could do with $11 million. 
forget remodeling the kitchen. They could buy a new house, a bigger one where they could start a family. He could quit his job and be a stay-at-home dad. Sita would never quit her job. She loved it too much. It was such an obscene amount of money that he didn't know what he could do with it all. But he knew it would remove obstacles and pave the way for a brighter future. As long as they had a future, the phrase destruction of your planet came back to him. He signed the contract in several different places. They were really fluent in legalese. When he handed Sitter the pink copy, she said, This is the pink copy. Yes, he said, pretending not to know what she was getting at. Where's the white copy? The real copy? Paresh said nothing. He looked up at the ceiling. Sita spoke calmly. Do you remember this morning when you made what we humans like to call a promise? Paresh recalled all of his rationalizations, and now they seemed insufficient. Sita loved their house. The kitchen counters were chipped, but she knew the layout by heart. Why would she want to sell a place she could navigate with her eyes closed? Sometimes she did walk around the house with her eyes closed. Once she bumped into the living room sofa, and that was only because Paresh had moved it a few inches to retrieve the remote without setting it back. He hadn't done it for her. He had done it for him. I'm sorry, honey, he said. I thought it was for the best, but I should have brought it home. Did you at least read the fine print? She asked. It had all been fine print, but I read most of it. The ceiling became very interesting to him again. They could repaint the ceiling. That would be a good use of money. Most of it, she said. You know, by not refusing the deal, I kind of saved the world. He shot Sita a hopeful glance. You kind of did it without me. Sita chose not to stare at the ceiling or even the floor. She looked right into Paresh's eyes. I'm going to bed. Paresh watched her leave. He waited, expecting the blob to appear since this was an inconvenient time in his life. But he was left standing alone in the kitchen. He stood there for an hour before joining his wife. The next morning, Paresh woke to find his wife sitting up with her arms crossed, glaring at him. No more signing away your body without consulting me, she said. Deal? Deal, muttered Paresh. Did you find out how the process works? If you're a subsidiary, they should let you stay in there and we can work out how to spend the money. Paresh shrugged. Paresh, dear, I love you, but you have the business sense of a marmoset. Caesar poked him. We need to contact the blob snob. This is a huge transaction. They ought to be more transparent. Then she threw the covers off. Wait, I've got a better idea. Sita walked out of the bathroom and returned with the pink copy of the contract. She tossed it to Parash. Let's get some answers. Parash turned to the first page of the contract and began to read it aloud. That was incredibly thorough, said Sita. I did say they were fluent in legalese. You think they're a whole race of lawyers? Like maybe somewhere out there, lawyers evolved into horned blobs bent on intergalactic domination. Paresh restrained himself from making a lawyer joke. Sita had set him up for so many responses and he could see her trying to guess which one he would use. But it would have been so easy, like signing a contract without reading every word. Sita's face fell. Come on, not even... You mean they haven't already? It's the low-hanging fruit. Paresh drew her close. A lawyer might be our only way to understand this deal. I should treat them with respect for now. According to the contract, the next step in the process was to begin removing redundancies. 
Paresh had authorised Blobsnob to make changes as they saw fit, evaluating his body for its capabilities in relation to human function versus its utility after the Blob took possession. Even having read the fine print, he was unclear on his status after the process was complete. The word annihilated appeared nowhere, which was promising. You've read me better stories in bed, said Suter, but I love the main character in this one. I was very invested in his fate. Sorry for the spoilers, said Paresh. Seriously, said Suter. Now I'm going to be sitting here waiting to see how the blob snub eliminate redundancies. Paresh's appendix burst and he screamed. As she drove him to hospital, she shook her head and repeated, I'm not saying anything ever again. I'm not saying anything ever again. The operation went smoothly and Sita sat by his bed and held his hand. Her hand was the first thing he felt as he regained his ability to feel. He squeezed it. I forgot I still had that thing, he said weakly. Not anymore, you don't, she said. They could have given me some sort of warning. They're not legally required to, she said. California is an at-will state. That leaves the rest of my body in a very precarious position. The blob appeared at the foot of the bed. Sita yanked Paresh's hand in surprise. Paresh yelped in pain and the blob yodeled in glee or distress. We are pleased to see that the termination of your appendix has been successful. We do wish it the best and thank it for its many years of service. The appendix doesn't do anything, said Sita, taking Paresh's hand again. We thank it for its many years of service, the blob repeated. That really hurt, said Paresh. I would appreciate a heads up next time. He scanned the blob, not seeing any clear distinction between head and body. But if they knew what an appendix was, they knew what a head was. We apologise for the inconvenience. Per your request, I am informing you that we have identified a redundancy in your mitochondria. We will not require them. My midichlorians? Mitochondria, said Sita. How could you forget the powerhouses of the cell? They make all the energy in your body. She slapped his head lightly. Paresh, I have a poster of one in my classroom. He looked away and smiled to himself. He remembered almost nothing of what Sita's classroom looked like because whenever he visited, he was so focused on how in her element she was when teaching. Poised and animated, she spoke about topics he knew nothing about with such passion that he wished he'd had her in high school instead of Mr. Clagg's. Right, said Paresh. How could I forget? Those things. Sounds like I need them, though. The blob shook its head, which allowed Parrish to see the subtle distinction. The blob snob equivalent are twenty times more efficient and powerful. They will now be replaced. Parrish, who was still groggy to this point, jerked fully awake. But that how now is now. It is done, noted the blob, with triumph or disinterest. It was so hard to tell with it. Paresh tried to sit up, raise his head. Sita had said he had trillions of cells in his body. He must have had trillions of midichlorate mitochondria, and now they were gone, and he had alien substitutes in his body. Did that make him a hybrid? Was he even human anymore? He felt human. Sita stared at him like he might not be. She turned to the blob. Will there be any side effects? What if his body rejects the alien organelles? The blob scoffed, an expression represented by a shift in the density of blob in its upper half. His body was deemed suitable for the procedure before it was conducted. He will experience no complications beyond enhanced productivity. Parrish found it much easier to sit up now. His head felt clearer. 
he heard a faint hum emanating from his body like white noise from a laptop. I appreciate these enhancements, but I don't know if I'm comfortable living the rest of my life with alien stuff. Having an alien inside his body was one thing, but if his body was also part alien, that was weird. His bar for weird had also risen recently. Per the contract, corporeal incorporation requires modification of the asset. His asset is just fine, said Sitter. I don't like this, said Paresh. It's creepy. The blob hummed with excitement or disapproval. By expressing concern regarding the original arrangement, you have authorised the alternative arrangement specified in Section 12, Clause 23. Sitter squeezed Parrish's hand. What did he just authorise? The blob remained silent for a few seconds as if his answer should have been obvious. He will go into you. The sandpapery voice made the statement sound more ominous. Into me, repeated Sita. There's no room for him in here. Do you understand how humans work? We have conducted an extensive study of human body self-confirmation or metaphysics, and we believe that one body can contain two selves as outlined in terms of the contract. Paresh didn't know how he'd leapt past Weird and into Bazaar without even trying. Did the blob snob allow for take-backsies? He would ask for a second ruling, but he suspected that carrying contracts was not well-versed in clauses this esoteric. Sita, however, was a teacher, and she spoke with confidence about subjects she knew much about, and even greater confidence about subjects she knew nothing about. The original agreement was made between blob snob and Paresh, as I am not a signatory on the contract, you have no authority to modify my body. Paresh didn't know the word signatory could sound so sexy. The blob replied with exasperation, its rough voice becoming somewhat high-pitched. Section 12, clause 23 clearly states that for the purposes of this arrangement, the undersigned and spouse of undersigned, if one exists, are equal by law, dependent on tax filing status. Paresh groaned. We file jointly. Sita bit her lip. I know the accountant said there were some minor disadvantages, but I didn't think she meant this. Then she held up her finger, smiling brightly. I contest that Paresh's statement constituted an expression of concern. She punctuated this assertion with a triumphant, emphatic nod. The blob sighed, or possibly farted. Paresh sniffed the air, but still couldn't tell. Before he could ask for clarification, the blob spoke. I must consult with the board on this matter. You will hear from us shortly. The blob disappeared. If this works, said Paresh, all it means is that I get to live with that thing inside me. Maybe if we confuse them enough, they'll leave us alone, said Sita. On the drive home, Paresh spotted his least favourite kids at the bus stop and asked Sita to stop. They climbed out of the copper 1991 Sentra to sneers of, Hey, it's Apu and Mrs. Apu. Paresh was disappointed they didn't know that Apu's wife was named Manjula. It's Jimbo, bellowed Paresh, throwing his hands in the air. He jabbed a finger at each boy as he continued, and Preston, and Clifford. The kids stopped their hollering, confused. Their apparent leader sputtered, Whatever man, my name Paresh had alien midichlorians and no more fear. The other day I met an alien blob I respect more than you because it respects me more than you do, and so I saved the world, all of it, even you. 
Cesar looked at him like she didn't care whether he was human. That was the hottest he'd been in all their years of marriage. She pulled him in for a deep, passionate kiss. Out of the corner of his eye, Paresh thought he saw her give the boys the finger. They weren't her students, but they did just get schooled. Paresh and Sitter returned to the car, leaving the boys standing with expressions almost as indecipherable as the blobs. As they drove off, Paresh rolled down the window and yelled with a fist in his air, and it said my complexion was optimal. Optimal! Sita experimented with barbecue chicken pasta for dinner, combining barbecue sauce and marinara sauce in what Paresh thought were haphazard amounts. They ate in relative silence. This concoction tasted better than the mustard pizza from a couple of nights ago, from the night when his troubles began. What had possessed him to agree to this arrangement? <laughs> possessed. Maybe he could blame it on the pizza. Paresh tried to pick apart the melange of flavours in his mouth. He didn't think a slight tinge of barbecue would be so pleasant in tomato sauce. He slurped up some of the remaining sauce in his plate. That was really good, he said. So what the hell are we going to do, she said. If they buy your legal argument, then at least I get to stay in my body. Maybe there's a loophole to get out of the thing entirely. We read through the whole contract. I didn't see anything. Paresh shook his fork at her. Unfortunately, the fork still had some sauce on it. Fortunately, the sauce didn't reach her. We are not lawyers or aliens. We wouldn't. Sita stood up and began clearing the table. There is also the issue of money. She reached for Paresh's plate. Paresh grabbed her wrist. We don't need the money. We never had it anyway. I'd rather be myself than myself plus an alien plus money. He let her go. Sita took his plate. You'd rather be yourself plus money. He looked her right in the eyes. I'd rather be myself plus you. That night, while Paresh was being himself plus Sita, the blob appeared by the bed. Sita screamed, a different sort of scream than she'd just been making a few seconds ago, and toppled off Paresh. Paresh let loose a stream of creative expletives. Out of breath, Paresh said, Has anyone told you guys you have the worst timing imaginable? The blob gazed upon their naked bodies and appeared to blush, a subtle red shimmer that coursed over its body for a second. I apologise for interrupting your mating ritual. The board has reviewed the statement and determined it to be legally binding. The alternative arrangement has been authorised. Sita pulled the comforter over her. So he'll go inside me. She looked at Paresh, scanned down and chuckled at her choice of words. His being will be temporarily relocated into your body until it can find a suitable home, said the blob, apparently still unclear on how humans worked. Sita had said there was no room for him, and he believed the woman with the graduate degree. For an intelligent alien species, they did not seem to have done all the necessary research. What if he says no? asked Sita. She pulled Paresh close to her, away from the blob. What if he backs out of the contract? The blob looked puzzled. Why would he refuse to proceed with what has been agreed upon? We are offering appropriate compensation for the body. Paresh put up her hand. Your compensation is more than appropriate. Hell, it's inappropriate. But I've changed my mind. I like my body. I want to stay in it. Only me. And I love him, but I'd prefer him to stay in his own body. I'm equal by law, right? Spouse of undersigned? What if I say no too? The blob's horns glowed. 
This is highly unusual. You're highly unusual, mutters Sita. Paresh knew carrion contracts had dealt with people like him before, assholes who reneged at the last minute. It happened. It was business. These aliens must have encountered it. If there's an early cancellation fee or something, I'll pay it. He suspected it would be more than the 300 bucks he'd paid for cancelling his cable deal, but they would find a way to make it work. The blob hopped onto the bed. Paresh was relieved to see it didn't leave a trail of goo behind it. In fact, it left no residue at all, yet he cringed to see its blobby blobness on his sheets. The blob spoke, its scratchy, sandpapery voice familiar to both of them by now. Declining to complete the transaction at this stage is equivalent to refusal before agreement and carries the same consequences. Sitter and Paresh looked at each other, silently having an entire conversation about the fact that they were going to be responsible for the destruction of the Earth, while mostly Paresh was. It's not like Sita hadn't told him to read before signing. Can we not bring that up right now? But it's true, and also I love you. Paresh took Sita's hand, ignoring the fact that he was completely naked. He mustered up all the dignity and gravity he had, sat straight up and said, I'll do it. Sita squeezed his hand and sat straight up with him. We'll do it. For Earth. For Earth, repeated Sita, who could not ignore the fact that they were completely naked and burst out laughing and fell over. The blob surveyed them with bewilderment, waves undulating back and forth across what Paresh took to be its facial region. It jumped up and down on the bed. The completion of transaction will commence immediately. Sita stopped laughing. You're going to take him now? Paresh's heart broke to hear the fear in his wife's voice. He would be leaving her and joining her in the same instant. He turned to face his wife. Before it happens, I want you to hear it from me one last time. I love you. She kissed him. I love you too. When they tied our clothes together at the wedding, that was supposed to be a symbolic union, right? I knew I should have been paying more attention to the Sanskrit. Paresh admired her smile with his own eyes while he still could. Also, in case you can hear my thoughts when I'm in there, I didn't really like that turkey chilli pizza. I knew it, she kissed him again. But I'm still going to make it for us to eat. It's delicious and it's my body I'll be putting it into, even if you're in there too. It'll be 100% yours, except for whatever metaphysical comfort what's it things happen with me. Sita turned to the blob. Will I be able to hear his thoughts? Will he be able to control me? He better not be able to control me. I read that clause again and that is not in there. A tiny wormhole opened up and spat out a spiral bound stack of papers thicker than any database user manual Paresh had ever seen. It plopped onto the bed in front of the blob. The blob snob have helpfully provided this list of frequently asked questions. When Sitter reached for it, the blob hopped on top of it. It is to be read after the completion of transaction, which must commence before close of business. Sita drew her hand away, slowly curling four of her fingers back. Wait, said Paresh. I don't want to be possessed with my pants off. He reached around for his clothes and hastily dressed. Sita took the opportunity to do the same. The process was made somewhat more difficult by the blob, who continued to jump up and down on a bed, making Sita's bra fall off onto the floor. Thank you for your patience, said Sita, after they were both closed. She turned to Paresh. You ready? No, he said. Neither am I, she said. Let's do this.
She reached for his hand and the blob honked like an angry goose. Please refrain from all physical contact during the transaction, it said. Sita reluctantly kept her hand at her side. Paresh closed his eyes. He peeked a tiny bit out of one eye in time to see the blob disintegrate and congeal into a ball of light that had to be visible outside, even through the curtains. Before he had time to wonder what the neighbours thought, the light shot towards his barely open eye, and then it was in him, going everywhere inside him, even places he didn't know he had, and he wanted to scream, but he no longer had control of his mouth, and for one terrible second, or was it an hour, the only thought in his head was, it didn't say it would hurt. And then he felt himself move to the right a couple of feet, a warm, welcoming body. The strange sensation of having a part alien body was gone, replaced by the strange sensation of having an all-woman body. He felt top-heavy. You in there? said Sita. Yes, said the Parash inside her, and the Parash outside her. The transaction is complete, the blob said, in Parash's voice, a vast improvement from its own. Was that how Parash sounded? He had been told he had the faintest traces of an accent, but he'd never heard it until now. Inside Sita's head... Paresh sounded the way he was used to sounding. Good, said Sita, not wanting to look at the alien wearing her husband's body. She got up and went to the bathroom, looking instead at her husband wearing her body. You said you wanted to be yourself plus me, she said to the mirror. Looks like it's going to be the other way around. Paresh looked at himself, herself, themself. They shared a body but not a mind, as far as he could tell before reading the FAQ. He had no motor control of Sita's body, and he knew she wouldn't relinquish it. He would never ask her to. Since the moment he signed the contract, he had resigned himself to this fate, riding along with either an alien or his wife. He preferred the alternative arrangement. Sita had always been his better half, and now they were a better whole. He hadn't quit his job. He hoped the blob could code. The first thing that blob did was congratulate me, he said, his voice sounding hollow inside Sita. Well, congratulations. We're millionaires. From the bedroom came a thud, like the sound of a man falling off a bed. Sita sighed. She took one last look in the mirror. Let's go teach that thing how to use its legs. The end. That was The Merger by Sunil Patel, read by Al Barclay. <laughs>
just survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.